Coming up on Harvard Chan this week in health, healthy dietary patterns. New research identifies eating habits with significant health benefits. Plus, a new wrinkle in the battle over Obamacare, the proposal from Republicans to replace the health care law. And rethinking end-of-life care, the changes that could improve the lives of those facing serious illnesses. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Friday, June 24th. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Montemiro. Noah, we begin this week with new research on some healthy eating habits. Two recent studies from the Harvard Chan School identified the benefits of eating more whole grains and eating a more plant-based diet. Let's start with that research on whole grains. The study, led by Chi Sun, assistant professor in the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard Chan School, found that people who ate 70 grams, or about four servings of whole grains a day, had a lower risk of premature death than those who ate fewer whole grains. The meta-analysis combined results from 12 published studies and included information from more than 786,000 people. Those who ate the most whole grains had a 22% lower risk of dying during the study period, and they also had a lower risk of dying from cardiovascular disease or cancer. Previous studies have found that whole grains may reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and poor gut health, among other conditions. Researchers believe that certain bioactive compounds in whole grains could contribute to their health benefits, while the high fiber content may lower cholesterol and glucose response while making people feel more full. When you're looking for whole grain foods, the experts recommend that you seek out foods that have at least 16 grams per serving, such as bran, oatmeal, or quinoa. All those foods can be part of a healthy plant-based diet, which leads us to our next story. Researchers at the Harvard Chan School found that consuming a plant-based diet rich in high-quality foods is linked with a substantially lower type 2 diabetes risk. And previous studies have highlighted the benefits of a plant-based diet, but this research makes an important distinction because it looked at the quality of a person's diet. The researchers looked at data from more than 200,000 people and found that those who adhered more closely to a plant-based diet low in animal foods had a 20% lower risk of type 2 diabetes. They also found that eating a healthy version of a plant-based diet was linked with a 34% lower diabetes risk, while those who ate a less healthy version, including foods such as refined grains, potatoes, and sugar-sweetened beverages, had a 16% increased risk of diabetes. The study's lead author, Ambika Satija, a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard Chan School, explains the hallmarks of this healthy diet. And it is easy to think about it in terms of whole foods that you're buying and that you're consuming. So, for instance picking whole grains instead of refined grains, picking fruits and vegetables, but not potato, uh, avoiding anything with added sugar, such as uh, sugar-sweetened beverages or sweets and desserts. That would help you get a much better quality diet and improve your health outcomes, And uh, you know, instead of just focusing on plant versus animal foods. Researchers also found that you don't necessarily need to eat a solely plant-based diet to reap these benefits. They found that even modestly lowering animal food consumption from five to six servings per day to about four per day was linked with a lower diabetes risk. So why is this plant-based diet so beneficial? Researchers say that a few factors could be at play. One is that plant-based diets are high in fiber, in antioxidants, and in unsaturated fatty acids and micronutrients, such as magnesium, and they're also lower in saturated fat. Another factor may be that healthy plant foods also contribute to a healthy gut microbiome. Obamacare is back in the news on Capitol Hill this week. 
On Wednesday, House Speaker Paul Ryan and other Republicans revealed their plan to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. It's the latest challenge to the six-and-a-half-year-old health care law, which the Obama administration says has helped millions of Americans get health care coverage. So what exactly are the Republicans proposing? We spoke about that with John McDonough, professor of the practice of public health at the Harvard Chan School. McDonough says this new proposal is not that different than previous GOP plans. He says it will keep some aspects of Obamacare while cutting others. So the plan gets rid of some things that are unpopular with the public, like, for example, the individual mandate, that everybody has to buy health insurance if they can afford to buy it or they pay a tax penalty when they file their taxes. On the other hand, this new plan gets rid of some things that Americans absolutely like a lot. So, for example, the ACA prohibits insurance companies from um, providing health insurance but conditioning that coverage based upon your medical history or your health status. The Republican plan would continue that except if you ever have a break in coverage, then you lose your guaranteed issue and the insurance companies go back then to rating you based upon your medical history no matter how far. And they have no limitations on how far or how deep they can look into your life to decide they don't want to cover you because you're not a good risk. So that is taken out and the, the support for people based upon income is taken out and other things as well are taken out that people actually kind of like. Americans seem to would like to see the ability for people to get into, for example, the Medicare program expanded. And Hillary Clinton is proposing, why don't we let people buy into Medicare starting at age 50? I don't know if, how far that's going to go, but, um, but the Republican plan goes in the opposite direction and says, let's raise the age at which people can get into the Medicare program from the current 65 up to 67. So there's a lot of political risks. On the other hand, this is just in some ways their wish list, and I wouldn't expect it to have a lot of lift um, unless, of course, we have unitary Republican control over the federal government next January, um, in which case a lot of these ideas will then have a lot of resonance and will be part of what is the new conversation in D.C. in the federal government. One important factor with this new proposal, says McDonough, is that Republicans did not put it into specific legislative language. And McDonough says that means the Congressional Budget Office, which analyzes bills to determine their cost or impact, can't effectively measure how much the proposal will cost. And cost has been a key Republican criticism of the Affordable Care Act. But McDonough says that a new study from the Urban Institute and Robert Wood Johnson Foundation actually contradicts that criticism. They estimate that if spending had continued on the trajectory that it, we thought it was going to be before the passage of the ACA, we as a nation would have spent, over, going forward over the next five years, about $2.5 trillion more than we're actually going to spend. Now, some of that can be attributed to ACA, some of that can be attributed to other things, um, but the notion that the ACA has triggered an explosion in costs rather than restraining them is pretty clearly contradicted by the evidence. McDonough says that the success of this Republican proposal depends on politics. If the GOP gains control of the White House and Congress, then an Obamacare repeal will have a chance of succeeding. And the impact of that could be significant, says McDonough. According to the Obama administration, the ACA has helped 20 million Americans gain insurance through expanded Medicaid coverage for lower-income people, 
or the ability to purchase subsidized insurance through healthcare exchanges. The GOP proposal would change that. Here's McDonough again. The subsidies, the support, is progressive in the sense that the lower your income, the more resources you qualify to help you obtain health insurance, either fully paid for or partially paid for. Uh, the Republicans want to provide a new tax credit to replace the ACA tax credit, but it is not varied by income at all. So everybody gets entitlement to the same tax credit. The only variation is for age. So older people would get a little bit more than younger people. So what that means is that most people who of those 20 million who've gotten coverage couldn't afford it otherwise uh, because they are in the lower or lower middle income strata. And so the Republican plans really want to end any particular benefits in helping people get coverage based on your income and just provide a flat tax credit to everybody varying just a little bit by age. So that means that the vast majority of Americans who get health insurance through the ACA would lose it. The number one reason that people don't have health insurance, it's not about gender, it's not about race, it's not about geography. The number one reason people don't have health insurance is because of income, because they can't afford it. And if you'd like to read the full Republican proposal, we've put a link on our website. Just visit hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. Also on Capitol Hill this week, the House passed a bill that would provide $1.1 billion to fight Zika virus. The legislation has been heavily criticized by the White House and Democrats and falls short of the $1.9 billion requested by the Obama administration. The bill will provide funding for mosquito control, research, and vaccine development, but is offset by $750 million in spending cuts to other health care programs. Democrats are also critical of a provision in the legislation that would restrict who can provide birth control services. Because Zika can be sexually transmitted, the White House said in a statement that this is a sign that Republicans are putting politics ahead of the threat of Zika. This legislation next heads to the Senate, and despite the objections, President Obama has not said if he'll veto the legislation if it does pass. Scientists may soon be able to test the groundbreaking gene editing technology known as CRISPR on humans. A federal panel this week approved a study that would use CRISPR to create genetically altered immune cells to fight three kinds of cancer. The study still needs approval from the FDA and the hospitals conducting the study before it can officially move forward. And so here's what the study would do. Scientists will be removing T-cells from patients with three different cancers, multiple melanoma, melanoma, and sarcoma. They'll then modify those cells using CRISPR in the hopes that these so-called designer cells can then fight malignant cells once they're inserted back into the patient. The hope is that one day CRISPR could be used to permanently eliminate diseases like Down syndrome or sickle cell anemia, by permanently repairing cells so diseases cannot be passed on to children. CRISPR is controversial, and scientists fear it could cause unintended side effects, which is why the study, if approved, will be watched closely. Finally in this episode, more than a quarter of Americans are living with a serious illness. And this week, a Senate committee on aging considered ways to improve care for those patients. Atul Gawande, executive director of Ariadne Labs and professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard Chan School, testified alongside other experts on palliative care. 
Gawande says there are critical difference between curative care that is designed to solely help people live longer and palliative care, which focuses on reducing pain and stress. Take a lesson. Medicine and society have failed to recognize that people have priorities in their life besides just living longer. Those priorities, the quality of life they want, varies in, from individual to individual and over time. The most reliable way to learn what people's priorities are for their care is to ask them. And we don't ask. We ask less than a third of the time. The result is that for the majority of people, their care at some point along the way becomes out of alignment with what their deepest wishes are for what matters to them besides just surviving. And we're seeing it now play out on a national level. We have, since 1988, we have had uh, measures every year uh, of some of the aspects of quality of life. And the data has been that you know now today, um, for people in the last year of life, they spend, more than half spend, are often in moderate to severe pain. More than half have more than a month of depression, periodic confusion, incontinence, shortness of breath. But the treatments they're receiving are entirely focused on solely the question of, do you survive or do you not survive? And that's where you get suffering. Now, when we do ask, when care is not narrowly focused just on the control of the disease, but on the wider range of priorities, on both quality and quantity, the experience is stunningly different. The result is that when people are asked and receive options of palliative care, which includes, which is focused on quality of life, people choose less toxic care. They enter hospice sooner. They suffer less. They're more physically capable. They're better able to interact with others and for longer in their life. Their family suffers less depression. They spend fewer days in the hospital and in the ICU. And as a result, they have lower costs. And they do not die sooner. They live longer, if anything else. In addition to having doctors ask more questions about end-of-life preferences, Gawande is proposing several other steps. That includes making sure everyone 18 and older has a designated healthcare decision maker, known as a healthcare proxy, and also ensuring that any patient facing a serious illness has discussed their goals and values with their doctors. And another possible solution being considered by experts and lawmakers, more training around palliative care in medical and nursing schools so that providers can have those conversations with their patients. If you'd like to watch the full video of Gawande's testimony, just head to our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that's all for this week's episode. I'm Noah Lovett. And I'm Amy Montemiro. You can listen to this podcast anytime on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.